Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity here with another edition of Off the Cuff. And today I am so excited to be welcoming back to the program after a far too long absence, Grant Williams, the inestimable Grant Williams. If you haven't seen him speak, you have to. Uh, his his slide decks are, and presentations and ability to craft a narrative are unparalleled. He is an unbelievably great macroeconomist and storyteller in a way that that's very relatable. Uh, that makes it so powerful as well. Runs uh, the things that make you go hmm, uh, TD, TTG, HMY. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think, yeah, I think you find it at grant-williams.com. Is that true, you Grant? And welcome yep. to the program. It's all there. Great to see you again, my friend. Thank you for that overly generous introduction. Oh, well, it, it, you, people will find out not even generous enough. Um, so I, I want to talk all things macro with you. You know, there's a chart I show all the time to my people because I, I just keep pointing at it going, this should cause more consternation than it seems to be. And it's just a simple chart you find on the uh, Fred, the, the Fed data site, Fred. Um, line one, US GDP. Line two, total credit market debt, not liabilities, not under unfunded debt. Debt, total credit market debt, not federal debt, because a lot of people focus on that. This other line is going like this. Credit has been uh, accelerating at twice the underlying rate of exponential compounding growth of GDP for a very long time. And even Jerome Powell said, by definition, that's unsustainable. What do you make of that chart? Look, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, right? The chart speaks for itself. There's no, you don't need to interpret that. It's very, very <laughs> straightforward. It's one of the most straightforward charts out there. And it's, it's the reality of the world we live in. Um, the, the, the question really is, is, not what's happened or why it's happened, right? The incentives have been there, um, ever cheaper and more abundant access to credit um, is is the incentive. And as the late Charlie Munger, God rest his soul, famously said, show mm -hmm. me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. So if you, if you yes. are going to lower rates um, and keep them low for 40 years, that chart is absolutely going to happen. There's there's no other chart that's going to take its place because the incentives are, 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 are dictating that's the chart. The question is, does it matter? And the answer is yes, of course it matters. Uh, and then the question is, well, why hasn't it mattered so far? And this is this is the bit that is kind of tricky, right? Um, and so when tr trying to figure out, does this chart matter? Uh, first of all, you've got the law of large numbers in effect, right? It's now such a big number that people can't get their heads around it, right? If, if you've got a salary of 50 grand and you owe 300 grand to the bank, you can, you can put that in perspective. You know what your income is. You kind of know how indebted you are and how big a problem that is for you, right? You owe six times your salary and you can think about, okay, how could I pay that back? It's, it's, a, it's a frightening but manageable number for a lot of people. This is, it's past frightening because the numbers don't even really make any sense to people, right? You know, what's a trillion? Mm -hmm. A trillion is one of those playground numbers that when you were a kid, you used to throw at your friends. Um, you know, we're into quadrillions when it comes to equity derivative exposure, and we're into quadrillions when we talk about the yen. So we're in these kind of made up numbers that people can't mm -hmm. really quantify. And so when you can't really quantify the number, you can't really understand how big it is. And so you're left to kind of think to yourself, well, look, if it's that big a problem, it would have gone wrong. And the fact that it hasn't gone wrong means it's probably not something I should worry about, right? And, and if you haven't worried about that for the last 10, 15 years, 
and you've borrowed more money and you've you've got you've become a part of that chart life's been pretty good right so why would you worry about it there's no need to worry about it you've been able to borrow at will you've been able to roll that debt over at increasingly lower rates and you haven't had to pay it back and you've used that leverage to whether it's to buy houses or cars or boats or to invest or whatever it may be life's mm -hmm. been good so that chart as as ridiculous as it is it hasn't mattered the problem now is obviously we live in a very different world we live in a world where interest rates are going up and credit is uh is not as easy to access for for the man on the street um and the cost of funding that credit and the cost of rolling over those debts is going up and so we are about to start seeing the downside of all this and that's people going bankrupt and companies going bankrupt and debt being um, defaulted on and all those things and once that cycle starts and we've seen an increase in bankruptcies already we've seen a significant increase in bankruptcies we've started to see um, defaults we've started to see companies uh, going to the wall once that happens then you start to think about what that chart means right you start to think to yourself wow there's debt defaulting how much debt is there and then you start looking at the charts like this and suddenly it becomes a problem and once it becomes a problem people start thinking about it then it kind of forces action now it won't happen overnight but charts like that as i, I keep saying i've said this in so many presentations i've lost count you know it doesn't matter to anybody until it matters to everybody and that's kind of the way these things tend to end. Suddenly, it becomes a thing we need to focus on. And suddenly, um, it matters. I mean, look at uh, not not to go down this rabbit hole, but look at COVID. When it was when it was a a, a a strange thing in China where people were falling over in the streets, it was a curiosity, right? And everyone was looking at it going, "Have you seen Have you seen this weird footage from people collapsing in the street in China? There's some weird Chinese uh, virus going around." It was a curiosity. First cases show up in the US and Europe, and suddenly it matters and we lock everybody down. So, you know, that tends to be the way these things happen. They don't matter until they matter to you. When they matter to you, they matter a great deal. So I, I cannot tell you when that chart is going to matter, but I can tell you it's going to matter. And thousands of years of monetary history bear that out. We're just in the process now of how do we how do we extend this? How do we keep this going for longer in the hope? that a solution magically presents itself. And unfortunately, in the case of debt, there are there's a there's three solutions, as we all know, right? It, it it can be paid back, which one look at that chart tells you there's absolutely no way that debt's going to be paid back. It can be defaulted on, which in a rising interest rate environment becomes more and more likely that more and more of that debt gets defaulted on, or it can be inflated away. And so that's the preferred option because it's a stealth option and it doesn't involve headlines about rising bankruptcies and rising um, uh, defaults and uh, things like that but getting that right um, in a world that has so much liquidity sloshing around with it is proving much harder I think than the Federal Reserve would like it to be that that two percent inflation rate is lovely right that's a really that's a really nice um, number to get so they can achieve this over time and that's what they're trying to do um, but we're not there and we're not going to be there we are going to have to deal with this at some point and when we are when we're forced to deal with it it's not going to be pretty. I mean, I wish I had better news for you and said that, yeah, you know, this is going to be fine, but it's not. I just, I just have literally no idea when it's going to matter. You know, I, I, uh, I summarize all three of those options um, down into one 
one sort of waggish uh, sentence. You know, people, I point to this chart and people say, well, what do you conclude from that? I said, there's really one question to resolve. Who's going to eat the losses? And oh, they're going to, yeah. you know, and, and, and if you pay it back, that's future generations. It's their loss because we pre-spent their money. And now we have, uh, you know, into austerity as we attempt to pay back what we already spent. Right. So, so with one way or the other, it's just, you, I see loss taking in that chart. And of course, uh, you know, watching how the Dodd-Frank law got rewritten and they did bail-ins for banks to, you know, the bankers are working very hard to make sure the answer is not them, right? The political class is working very hard to make sure it's not on their watch, you know? And unfortunately, as it seems to be always the case, it's it's the the people out there actually performing the valuable services of carrying the nation forward and putting their hard work and effort into having families, households, producing goods and services that are needed and wanted. Uh, they're the people who, who ultimately bear the brunt um i wish i could see it differently but i i don't I, I don't see a way out of this at this point that doesn't have losses spread no, unequally the, the, the people the people that this is going to matter to unfortunately the public are the only ones who don't have a voice right who don't have a seat at the table trying to figure out how this goes down you're right the bankers have um, powerful lobbies that, that have made sure that they can ring fence themselves to the best of their abilities. It won't work for all of them, but the industry as a whole will survive and the big will get bigger. And obviously mm -hmm. policymakers uh, also have a big say in how this goes down. And that will be um, dictated not by prudence, but by protection of legacy and protection of institutions. Um, you know, and, and for all this to be happening during the fourth turning, is no coincidence. This is what happens in a fourth turn. You know, if you read Neil and Bill's uh, tremendous book, then you realize that one of the characteristics of a fourth turning is the ultimate loss of faith and destruction of public institutions in which we've lost faith. And whilst uh, people haven't lost faith in the central bank yet, uh, and perhaps we should clarify that when we talk about people losing faith in the central bank, let's break that down into financial market participants and non-financial market participants i think if you're a non-financial market participant your faith in the fed is wavering because they've they've become much more visible in the last 25 30 years um, at their own insistence basically they've inserted themselves into the public consciousness mm -hmm. starting with greenspan um so they become more visible and people have a a better if not complete understanding of their role and so the man in the street is not necessarily happy with the Federal Reserve and hasn't necessarily kept their faith in them. People in financial markets are different because, again, the incentives are aligned. All the people in financial markets care about is, is this Fed going to help us make money? And the answer has been an unequivocal yes. So until mm -hmm. the Fed start losing people in the financial industry money, then, then faith, as it pertains to financial market participants, won't evaporate. Now, I would suggest that uh, this year, since um, the, the events that caused Silicon Valley and Signature to go down in terms of the losses on their mark-to-market of their treasury bonds, that's probably the first sign of uh, a potential avenue down which this faith amongst financial market participants can be lost in the Federal Reserve. So that that's something that's important to watch. Um, but now that, that faith on the part of financial market participants it revolves around one thing and one thing only. Are you going to cut rates? Are you going to keep the game going? Are you going to increase liquidity? Are you going to do all the things that you've done at the first sign of trouble for such a long time now to ensure this party goes on? And so 
Powell's in a tough place because in order to fix the problem, he's going to have to disappoint financial markets. Um, and I don't know. I think he wants to be ready to do that. And I think he's tried to use forward guidance in such a way that it's that it's kind of reversed. He's trying to convince people to believe him that he is going to keep rates higher to try and uh, take some air out the bubble without popping it. But ultimately, as we've seen from um, market pricing of interest rates for next year, the market's betting on three or four cuts next year. Um, so they they don't believe him. They don't believe that he's gonna he's gonna do what he said. So for you know that's his quandary now. Do I do I solve the problem or or do my best to solve the problem and disappoint the last group of people that have faith in me and risk the chaos that ensues if financial markets become unhinged, or do I risk the legacy of the Federal Reserve as an inflation fighting force? and bow down and cut rates as the market's saying I will so they can go, see, we told you you don't have the cojones to do it. It's a very tough spot for him. And uh, I'm pretty sure I know what he wants to do, which is be hawkish and stay higher. But I just don't know that he has the the, the, the stones to do it. And, and I, you know, I've, I've, he's fooled me once. When he first took the, the, the role, you know, I, I listened to him and I, I'd read some of his contributions to the fed minutes before he became chair and i and i tweeted i, I remember tweeting this i can't remember when it was or not long after he took office i said you know i kind of like jay powell there i've said it and i got so much abuse for it and uh you know and i said well let's see let's see but he, he definitely understands what's going on you can tell that from the transcripts he understands what the fed has done he understands why it's dangerous maybe you'll fix it and of course i've been proven totally wrong so for me to believe that he's going to suddenly turn into Paul Volcker II and, and stick to his guns. Uh, you know, what, what, what's that famous George Bush saying? Uh, fool me once, uh, fool me twice, you can't fool me again. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, I'm okay, let's go on Jay Powell, because I am confused as well. Um, I, I, I go back and forth, um, and I actually think he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. And this gets a little wonkish, which I know you can entertain, but but for people listening... This actually really matters a lot. So so there's the things that that are we talk, you know, the headline stuff, which is mostly bollocks. Right. Um, the Fed cares about full employment and stable prices. Right. Not really. Um, you know, what do they care about? They care about financial system stability. That's the bedrock of their mandate. Make sure that the banks are happy and healthy and whole. OK. Prior to 2008. If we went through an interest rate hike campaign and I spent a lot of time studying this, as I know you did, but here's how it would work. The Fed didn't have a magic dial. They could just say the rate is now 2%. They would have to go out into the open market of all the banks, the ecosystem, and they would have to withdraw cash. And they would start taking cash out of the system and putting back you know, uh, assets, treasury bonds or their equivalent, um, mostly treasury bonds pre-2008. And eventually there wouldn't be quite enough cash out there and banks would charge each other marginally more for the overnight and, and the overnight rate is what they're tracking. So it was actually this thing where they had to pull cash and then watch. And that's how they did it. Then under Bernanke, probably the biggest single change of my lifetime, they said, oh, we're going to start paying banks interest on excess reserves. They make huge amounts of excess reserves, print, flood them out there. The banks put them back with the Fed and the Fed says, oh, we'll pay interest on this. Well, all they have to do is pay 3% on these and magic, the market rates now 3% because why would you get less than you could get from the Fed. In fact, it's probably marginally higher out there in the real world. So now they did have a magic dial, but the mistake would be to think that hiking rates today is the same as tightening because tightening meant 
pulling cash out of the market. Things got financially tighter. So that's why I've been mystified watching this whole thing um, go. The Fed's you know working its balance sheet down pretty aggressively and nothing is happening to my financial liquidity indexes. But that's because there's still a you know nearly $800 billion of excess reserves just parked out there. It's a huge pile of money. Do you agree? I mean, is this, is the plumbing important to understand if we try and make sense of things today? For sure it is. Yeah. I mean, plumbing is very important to understand and it's, it's deliberately opaque, right? Um, it, it's, it's kept that way for a reason because the more complicated it is, the easier it is for people to go, Oh, it's too hard. I don't want to understand it. Um, and understanding it is, is incredibly crucial thing to do. So, they are they are they're trying everything they can to talk tough in the hope that words will matter now words mattered in the other direction obviously when they talked about we're going to keep rates low for an extended period of time everybody went out and borrowed but again the incentives are just so completely misaligned of course people are going to go out and because there's money to be made here so your words are going to be much more powerful when you're whispering sweet nothings in the market's ear than when you're telling them you're going to punish them um, people don't want to hear that. We, we're not we're not inclined to hear bad news. We'd much rather hear good news. Um, so yeah, the the, the plumbing of the, of the markets is incredibly important, and and what they're doing at face level and what's happening in the background. You're right. There is there is abundant liquidity, and conditions are really not getting tight. And, and you know you just have to look at the resurgence of crazy things happening in the NFT space, for example, to tell you that. Rates are not tight enough. They're just not because this sort of thing does not happen when money is tight. Um, so, you know, for, for people trying to understand how the plumbing works, unless you really, really want to go down the rabbit hole and devote an awful lot of time to understanding very arcane um, things, um, the simple thing is to look at look for signs like that. Look for signs of what Alan Greenspan famously called irrational exuberance. If mm -hmm. people are still buying monkey jpegs thinking they're going to triple their money rates uh, monetary conditions are loose it's just that simple you don't have to get any more complicated than that and mm -hmm. go down the rabbit hole when you see the price of 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 assets that work really well in a in a in a zero cost of capital environment start to perform terribly then you know that there is there is a tightening taking place, and that's the important thing to figure out. You know, if you want to go into the IOER and you want to go into the RRP and you want to go into all these arcane little corners of the financial plumbing, uh, unless you are correctly disposed to going down those rabbit holes, you, you'll just give up because it's too complicated and and deliberately so. Yeah, yeah, I, I think deliberately so is is the right way to look at that. So, um, so I, I want to talk now. Uh, let's rotate the Rubik's cube. Um, I want to talk about this from the direction of narratives. Uh, and, and it's just fascinating to me. COVID taught me a lot about the power of narratives or sure. the illegitimate power of narratives, right? So, you know, you get things just dead wrong, um, but people all sort of share that narrative and it's what you get. Um, I'm very worried about things like, I think we've got a green energy myth. I think I would like to talk to you about some narratives around those things. But, but again, the fractal to help me understand this. Um, one of the most astonishing things to me was watching coming into COVID in, in February of 2020, WeWork, which I've been waiting forever for this thing to go bust, right? Because it's just, it was just, yeah, it was just a bad idea, right? So I watched their bonds spike to 20%, right? I'm like, oh, this is it. This is it. And then from 20, March of 2020, all the way through to the end of 2021, those bonds went all the way back down to par. 
pretty much like eight yep. and three quarter percent. And then over the next, you know, net, then they ended up at 99%, you know, interest rate and, and, and completely dead. But I was just sitting there going, hold it. The entire premise of WeWork from every standpoint is completely broken. Nobody's going back to work. If there's any sector of real estate that's going to get monkey hammered more than any other, it's going to be office space. And their bonds went from 20% down to eight and three quarters. So who's buying? I mean, that there's just somehow the narrative, I don't know what happened. Maybe I should just rewatch the big short and realize this was big banks gaming something. But, um, well, you know, no, I, 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 it was I, astonishing. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that's, it's big banks gaming something, but, it, but again, you know, let, let's look at incentives and let's look at this through, through a practical lens rather than, you know, and I think a lot of us immersed in these markets tend to look at these things through our own lens, which is colored by uh, a, deeper understanding of financial markets and how they work. And when things don't work the way they're supposed to work, i.e. all the reading, all the learning, all the experience we've had tells us this is how the world functions. When it doesn't function that way, we we get really kind of bogged down in trying to understand why and trying to figure out, well, this just doesn't make any sense. And it, it completely rattles us because we feel like we have a degree of certainty about how certain asset classes will react to certain incentive certain headlines because we've got years of experience so you know in covid when you look at we work um and and like you you know I, I i was talking about we work for ages and this 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 will ultimately this has to go to zero it just doesn't work before covid you know covid at to your point was the one ah oh, okay this is it finally this is where it's gonna uh, meet its maker and of course ultimately it did but we saw a lot of this in covid we saw all this with AMC and and GameStop and all these all these things that people were familiar with, and everybody knew. Everyone heard of WeWork, right? A lot of people worked in the office. If they didn't work in the WeWork office, they saw WeWork blazoned on big buildings, and there were a lot of people talking about WeWork. It was a, it was a thing, right? WeWork was a thing, and people were aware of it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, when you when you have all this liquidity sloshing around, you have a load of people uh, who are sitting at home with cash in their pockets and no work to do. Um, we do see GameStop and we do see AMC and we do see all the, the meme stock craziness of, of that period. And what was it that was most impacted by that? It was all these things. It was AMC. It was it's the movie theaters that people are so familiar with. And instead of looking at the balance sheet and the debt profile, they go, the movie theater is great. I go to the movie theater every week. I mean, who wouldn't want to own the movie theater? I'm never going to stop going to the movies. So we got to this point where fundamentals just didn't matter. It just didn't matter. It was all narrative. And if the narrative was on an individual basis, i.e., I love going to the movie theater, therefore the movie theater is not going to go bust because I go every week and other people go every week and there's always people in there. It's never going to go bust. And I love AMC. Therefore, I can buy some of these shares because, hey, they're going to go up because, because of people like me. It has an extraordinarily powerful effect. You know, the perfect example is is Hertz, right? Hertz trading up in bankruptcy, right? I mean, it's it's absurd what happened, but as a financial market participant, you're sitting there going, "This makes no sense at all," and it didn't. And ultimately, financial gravity would assert itself. But in that moment, you talk about narrative. In the moment when the narrative was, "Wow." Hertz has fallen from 30 to six. Uh, it's Hertz. I rent Hertz all the time. If it goes back to 12, I double my money. 
bankruptcy didn't matter. It was all about the number. It was all about the number on the screen. It was all about the stock price. And a lot of people with you know, trillions in stimulus dollars got behind those. And we saw what happened with Gabe Plotkin. Um, we saw what the, you know, the, the, the roaring kitty stuff did to him and his hedge fund. Um, and, and this narrative of, you know, sticking it to the man became such an important rallying cry for people who believed in that narrative. Now, if you, if you take a look at the share price of AMC and GameStop, um, you know, you can see exactly what's happened over time when the narrative dies down and people aren't talking about these things anymore, the narrative's dead. Guess what? Financial gravity reasserts itself and they're all back down to, you know, pennies. And the damage that's been done in the meantime to the balance sheet, particularly of AMC by Adam Aaron and his shameful shenanigans in terms of issuing stock and doing everything he could to feed all these lunatics who were, who were buying it for the wrong reasons, you know, one day you hope he'll get his comeuppance, but I, I don't know how that happens. You know, has what he's done illegal? Probably not. Is it unethical? Absolutely it is. But, you know, there's not, there's no, not going to be a trial in the court of ethics. So, Look, narrative is incredibly powerful. We are prone to it. And at a time when there was this massive narrative on the public about COVID, is it any wonder that people grasped onto any other narrative? And we've got one bad one telling us we could all die and we need to be locked down in our homes. Hey, here's a good narrative. I can make a lot of money out of this while I'm sitting here. It, it, it's perfectly understandable to me what happened, both in the moment. I, I couldn't, I'm scratching my head at the time. But there was no way I was going to stand in front of it and short these companies, even though I knew they were going to be worthless at some point. And it makes it makes complete sense to me now that they've all basically gone back to zero. And it makes complete sense that the winners of this are Wall Street and the losers are Main Street because they just have more expertise in a complex arena. And, you know, I wish everybody that, that punted around these things sold at the top to Wall Street and got out. That would make me really happy. But we all know that didn't happen. Mm. And Diamond Hands and all this stuff, you know, we're holding this forever. You know, we, we know how the story ends. It's, it's the same story. Um, experience trumps naivety every time, and it may take a little while to play out, but it's it's never going to be any different, I'm afraid, except in in a brief moment like we saw with GameStop. Well, that, that's all brilliant. And, and I understand GameStop and Robinhood and, and the whole thing, and I, I troll Wall Street bets on Reddit and, and other places to sort of track. But I'm thinking about the bonds of WeWork. I think of bonds differently, and maybe I have a wrong model yeah. in my head, but but nobody's sitting in their pajamas at home saying, Oh, here's a WeWork bond at 19 and three quarter percent. I'm I'm getting in, you know. Um, so so but there's somebody somewhere on a terminal, and for a year and a half, WeWork bonds got bid up. So there's who are these people? I mean, I don't get it, but I mean, I because I consider bond traders, they as they say, right? Stocks are for show, bonds are for dough. I consider the bond traders smarter than average. Um, they're not I, as I prone to these flights of fancy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I, but again, in that moment when the narrative had shifted, the chance if you know if you're gonna if you are really gonna game this, if you are just sitting there thinking how can I make money, mm -hmm. you are not thinking WeWork is a good credit. What you are thinking is, at that price on those bonds, WeWork is. At least in Massasan's eyes, at SoftBank, too big to fail. He'll probably throw some more money at it, or it's a stock that people know, and so there will be people coming in looking to trade these bonds. There's a there's a trading profit here. It's not an investment. It was a trade, and in that period, everything became a trade. Right? It, no no one was investing during that period. Everybody was trading, and and that includes, I think, you'll find seasoned bond traders that saw incredible opportunities to 
to take advantage of the naive and the gullible. And and you'll notice that the vast majority of that stuff that you just described went on in household name stocks and bonds, stocks that mm -hmm. the public were familiar with. It wouldn't have happened in some, you know, third order chemical company that no one is familiar with that makes a, you know, an ingredient that goes into some obscure household cleaning product, but it has a monopoly mm -hmm. on that product. If those bonds hit the skids, you would have had a few serious investors that really understood the company and had a sense of whether the company would survive, saying, actually, at these levels, these are good value. The company's credit is good. I'm going to buy them. It wouldn't have made any headlines. But we work bonds falling creates headlines, which pulls people in. And we work bonds rallying creates more headlines, which pulls more people in. And that's just that was mm -hmm. the game of the moment. You know, I, 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 sadly, I think it's that simple. So let's let's stuff this under the aegis of uh, too much liquidity when you get NFTs, uh, monkey apes, you know, trading again, and you also have people buying WeWork. So, so there's a narrative structure in play. All right. Um, here's what I'm worried about, like big existential worry time, is that we've had this narrative structure around green energy for a long time, right? And it has a little dovetail with ESG and all this investing. But we've been telling ourselves, like, like, like let me make it real simple. You can investigate this all you want, go down to the carpet fibers. But on the one hand, there's the headlines that we read all the time, like wind now cheaper than coal, wind power now cheaper than gas. And then you go over here and you read offshore wind company going out of business. Siemens takes giant write down on wind turbine. Blah, blah, blah. If this if these if this narrative was true, it's cheaper than coal. I would not be reading headlines like this. That's my sure. simple man's understanding of the situation. Sure. Yeah. Look, I, I, again, I'm not quite sure how to answer that because everything is narrative, and that you know, and the climate narrative is a particularly strong one because it has it has devolved into good guys and bad guys. And you know, it's funny. I um, I had my dear friend Felix Zulaf on my podcast this time last year, and. As Felix tends to do, he gave an absolute masterclass for an hour and 15 minutes in macro thinking and markets and where everything was going to go. And his roadmap, mm -hmm. you know, three years out has been has played out extraordinarily well. I mean, it's incredibly valuable information that Felix um, that Felix shared. And as I always with Felix, I get tons of emails from people uh, after those conversations saying, "Oh, great, that's fantastic." And this time around. We talked for 30 seconds. I went back and measured it because I got a whole bunch of emails about it. We talked for 30 seconds about climate. And what Felix said was, look, when I look out at the future, and I look at potential things that could catch people offside. He said, the thing that I think could most catch people outside is if we go into a period of global cooling instead of global warming. He said, if that happens, and I've, I've read a lot on it, and I think there's a chance it could happen, uh, we are completely unprepared for what happens to commodities, soft commodities, blah, blah, blah. That was basically it, right? And I, ha I can't tell you how many emails I had from people that were along the lines of, well, the conversation with Felix was brilliant, but I can't believe he's a climate denier. I can't believe you would give him a platform. I can't believe. And, you know, people are absolutely entitled to that opinion. But if you can't listen to an hour and 15 minutes of, of pure gold in terms of if you signed up for my podcast, this is the kind of information you've signed up to listen to. If you cannot take an hour and 15 minutes of pure gold that's worth a subscription price on its own, 
and disagree with 30 seconds of it and just go, yeah, but the other one hour and 14 minutes and 30 seconds was fantastic. I don't agree with him on that, but whatever. Let's focus on the rest. Then I don't know what to say, to be honest with you. And, and I had, I had um, my friend Simon Hunt came on the week after Felix. And Simon said, in, while we were recording, oh, I heard your conversation with Felix. And like him, I think that this global cooling thing could be the big thing that catches everybody offside. You know, it's happened before. And if you follow sunspots and you follow this and, and quoted something, and again, a minute out of an hour. And I had people email me and say that they were going to cancel their subscription because I, I, I'd, I'd become a platform for climate deniers. And, you know, I, I don't really know what to do with that because I'm not a climate scientist, right? I, I don't spend my entire life reading about climate science and understanding it because I can bring up an expert who can tell me that as they did 10 years ago, in 10 years' time, Miami's going to be underwater or whatever it may be. And I can also bring up a credentialed expert who can tell me the completely opposite story. So it's mm -hmm. obvious the science isn't settled. It's obvious that there is, a, a, again, a narrative at play here that says the approved narrative is global warming, which has now been changed to climate change because it gives you that little bit of extra leeway, right? If 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 Because global cooling is climate change. It's just changing the other direction. And I'm not saying I don't believe in, in global warming or climate change. I'm not saying I believe global cooling is a thing. I'm saying I don't know. And I'm reading and trying to understand. And I'm happy to hear views that are divergent from the common perception of things because I want to understand because the world is is acting as if uh, we are going through warming. Everything in the world is set up to counter that. So my friend James Aiken always says, where can I be wrong? And to me, where you can be wrong is if that's wrong. It doesn't mean to say it is, but challenge the assumptions. Is If that's wrong, what, does that, what difference does that make? And it makes an awful lot of difference. And I think what we're seeing now in the, in the area of green energy is uh, the kind of dawning of what I call the practicality. The practicality is kind of arriving hard and fast to politicians who have picked dates that seem a long way in the future to achieve objects which are noble in nature, right? If we could get rid of all emissions, great. I don't care if you believe in global warming or global cooling. If we can get rid of greenhouse gases, that's tremendous, fantastic. But saying we can do that by 2025, and then forcing the world to adapt to that. Well, guess what? Here we are, just coming to 2024, and you can see it everywhere. Politicians are starting to realize there is absolutely no way people are going to be able to do what we promised we would make happen by 2025. How do we kind of weasel out this? How do we backtrack without losing face, with, without losing control of the narrative, without ceding the moral high ground, without compromising our vote? You can see all this stuff playing out. And the sad thing is today, and social media has amplified this, people find it incredibly difficult to say, I was wrong. You know, I thought this was going to happen. But as it turned out, this happened. And now I look at it, you know, I made some bad assumptions. And everybody is out on social media prognosticating about the future. And they're all so dogmatic and so certain about what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you do that publicly, it makes the degree of difficulty in climbing down that much harder because 
you've got to publicly admit being wrong. And we're just not good at that. You know, private, I've had so many private conversations with people about, about climate and about Bitcoin and about all these controversial things where everybody's picked a side. And in private, I've had some amazing conversations about this and learned so much, but I don't tackle these on my podcast deliberately because I absolutely know what's going to happen. Right. I, if I, if I say, right, I'm going to do an episode about climate change. There'll be people who write to me and go, you should, you should tackle climate change. I want you to do a podcast about climate change. And of course, for the most part, not everybody, but for the most part, what they mean is, I want you to do a podcast about climate change that reinforces my side of the debate. Mm -hmm. And I want you to stick it to the deniers, or I want to stick it to you to the pro-climate change people. You have those conversations in public. Nobody's going to change their mind, Chris. Nobody who is an adamant climate change global warming guy or an adamant climate denier is going to change their mind from hearing me try and talk sensibly and reasonably about the subject with someone who has a, an opposite opinion. They're just not. And so it's sadly become a waste of time. In private, it's a very valuable thing to do because there's a humility in a private conversation of saying, wow, you know, I hadn't thought about that, actually. Yeah, that's a really good point. I need to, I need to go away and think about that. But in public, it's really difficult. So, you know, the, the power of narrative is incredibly strong. And in that particular area, around climate change, it has become good guys and bad guys. And unless you believe in this, you're a bad person. And I know plenty of people, incredibly thoughtful people, who just don't have enough confidence in the science or have enough doubt in the science from what they've read on the other side to say, look, I've got some questions. I've got some questions. It doesn't matter because we're still going down that road. The world is going down that road. And I'm still I'm still sorting out my uh, recyclables in my trash because that's what we do. I'm not, you know, sitting in my house and lighting coal on fire because I don't believe in it. But I have questions. And we should have questions. It's science. Isn't the whole idea of science that you question it? I thought that was the whole point. So I get I get very frustrated about this, and, and I'm sure I'll mm -hmm. get an avalanche of I'll get an avalanche of of mail from this conversation because I haven't picked the right side. I'm trying to stay in the middle. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to understand it more, and I'm open to either side being wrong. And that for me is the best I can do on any subject. I mean, ultimately, you have to pick a side when it comes to investing because you've got to put money at stake. And you've got to be long, you've got to be short, you've got to take no position. But in big ideas like this, you can you can do your bit to cut green. You can buy an electric car and still question the science. It should be perfectly fine to do that, you know? But uh, but it isn't. And and I think that's a very sadly, a very deliberate move to to demonize one half of the argument. Um for political ends, because unless you can, if you can demonize the people that doubt the narrative, then you get much more buy-in from the people who are on your side that help you achieve your political ends. And that's, that's just the way it goes. And I, and I, it, it doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make me hopeful for the future, but it's a reality we have to face, unfortunately. Uh, all very well said. You know, this is the, this is, we're in, you're in good company. Um, I, I wade in this, I get in trouble all the time. Um, because I refuse to uh, hew to what I call belief-based scientism, okay? Um, 
And, and I study things enough to know what I know and what I don't know. And by the way, with every passing year, Grant, the older I get, the less I know for sure. Um, my humility right. is just is skyrocketing these days. I just I know nothing anymore. Yeah, um, one of my one of my friends has a has a, a thing on the wall in their house that says, "I'm sorry, I'm not young enough to know everything," which I just think is <laughs> is fantastic. Yeah, well, it's just part of the the wisdom process. But, um, you know, as they say, you know, humans aren't rational. We're rationalizers, right? And, and and so you can take data and fit it back into your schema until it gets way past awkward, and and obviously doesn't match anymore. Um, but the truth is that um, I, I kind of get where people are at to some extent. And I saw this a lot with COVID because, you know, I did really, really deep dive COVID coverage for a long time. Um, it's my science background. And I watched public health officials think they were doing the right things. They're like, well, you know, if we give any daylight, if we present any sort of uncertainty, then somebody won't mask up and something bad will happen. So we'll just say they they work. Um, we can't allow any discussion that there might be side effects because that would lead to vaccine hesitancy and that would be bad. So we'll just gaslight any possible injuries. We know there's some, but, but we're just going to suppress those. But in fact, back to the fourth turning, what those do is those just start knocking legs out from under the institutional trust stool, right? And the climate scientists have done this to themselves in spades. Right. By presenting certain things. If we don't do X by Y, Z will happen. Right. You know, and, and if you just scratch at it, like, well, what does happen if we hit one and a half degrees? What happens? Nobody knows. Maybe maybe people in zone 5A growing sites get, have a zone six growing site now and they can actually grow better vegetables in the summer. We don't they've never explained, like, what's this thing that's going to happen? And the truth is, here's what they should say. This isn't a complicated discussion. This is a complex system. We lack the ability to forecast complex systems. But what we're worried about is that we're going to unknowingly get up to a tipping point, a Lorenz attractor, where the, we go into a phase state and the phase switches really suddenly and it goes to something we don't like as humans. You know, rains return to the Sahara, but they stop falling in the breadbaskets. Uh, that's bad for a while. Um, so, so, but they're not being honest. And, and well, but, but Chris, but Chris, let me, let me just interrupt. It sorry, is scientific it's... dishonesty, right? Yeah, so uh, uh, that bothers me. Yeah, and I, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think there's an important there's an important thing to add to that because I, I don't necessarily disagree with anything you said there, but there is a level of complicity on the part of the public who want to be told you're safe, who want to be told if you do this, it will be okay, right? That is that's part of the human condition, and that is what we that is what we rely on, right? People, in the most part, and I, and I think it's 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 funny over the last few years, it's become more and more apparent to me that when you when you immerse yourself in the world we're in, when you immerse yourself in finance, um, you have a much greater understanding of all the things that are wrong with the financial system, with society, with all the things that money and whether people understand it or not, money not only is it the root of all evil, it is the foundation stone of everything of society whether you like it or not money is at the root of it all and so when you understand money and you understand the financial system you have a greater sense of how screwed the whole system is and so i think we knowing that we are we are more cynical we are less trusting and we are more prone to actively disbelieve what we're being told by you know, to use Ben Hunt's analogy, the people standing at the lecterns pointing at us. Because we know that 
the financial system, which underpins society, is rotten to the core. We know that, right, because we are in it. And so when we see these people telling us this is how it is, we are naturally disinclined to believe them. So our, our the lens through which we look at all this stuff, the prism that we view it through, is very different to the man in the street who takes no interest in the financial plumbing, takes no interest in the stock market. They've got their pension going on. They've got money going into their 401k. They don't actively follow stocks and shares. They might have done during lockdown when they got sucked into the GameStop thing. Oh, this is fun. This is like a casino. But they don't have any great interest in understanding and this idea that i want to understand something is incredibly important so that's the majority of the population even though finance affects everybody we are in a minority of the people who live and breathe it and understand it fully so what you have is a minority is a majority a vast majority of people who are predisposed to hearing don't worry it's going to be okay don't worry if you do this it's going to be okay. If someone comes to you and says, don't worry, that chart you showed at the beginning with all the debt on it, that's going to be fine. You're going to go, bullshit. There's no way it's going to be fine because you know. But if you didn't understand what it was and you went to someone and said, look, should I be worried about this? And they go, hey, I'm an elected official. I'm part of the government. No, you shouldn't worry about that. We're inclined to go, oh, thank God. I don't have to worry about that. Okay, fine. So, through COVID, through all these things that we've been through, the the tailwind has been stay home, get locked down, get vaccinated, and people for the majority are going to go, if that will keep me safe, I'll do it. And that's totally fine. You know, that's absolutely fine. At the same time, the problem is, again, that the people who decided I don't want to get vaccinated were demonized, actively demonized. And that is a very personal choice. You know, I, I got vaccinated. I did not want to. If I'd had free choice, I would not have done it in a million years with an experimental vaccine. Now, people say, well, you do have free choice. But the answer was, I wouldn't. I couldn't travel. I was locked down in the Cayman Islands. I couldn't continue my business. I couldn't leave the island. I couldn't do so. For me, I decided to get the first vaccination. Unwillingly, but it was a trade. I said, I will roll the dice and take it, but I I reserve the right to not take it if I wanted to. And I respect anybody that said, I'm not taking the vaccine. I, I'm, I refuse to do it because I understood the motivation. It wasn't that I want to potentially get other people sick. It was, I do not want to put an experimental vaccine in my body. Um, and so the big problem is is not that. It's not that some people decided they weren't going to. It's that the narrative around that became, if you don't do that, you are a bad member of society. You are endangering other people. And because this vast majority of people wanted to be safe and wanted to have someone in a suit behind a podium tell them, if we do this, we're all going to be safe. Hey, stay safe. We'll get through this together. It's very easy to demonize those people. And so, you know, it's a societal flaw that's never going to change. It's never going to change. Right, because there will always be a majority. There will always be a group of people that want to think for themselves and have free choice and, and, and don't want to do things that they don't feel they should be forced to do. And in a, in, a, in a perfectly functioning society, they would have that option. And everybody would go, all right, fine. And on an individual basis, I've got tons of friends that didn't get vaccinated. And at the time, I had no problem with it whatsoever. And 
post-COVID, my attitude to them is, you know what? Good for you. Good for you. You stood up for what you what you believed in. You didn't get forced into doing something that you were against on whatever grounds. I don't care what the grounds were. If you didn't want to do that, you shouldn't be coerced and forced into doing it. Uh, yeah, I'm proud of you for sticking to your guns. I didn't. I, I took the vaccine. Um, you know, I, 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 I haven't taken boosters and I won't take boosters, but that should be okay, right? It should be okay. And so, you know, I just, I just feel all of this is wrapped into this fourth turning, is wrapped into this point where society just starts tearing itself apart. And we can wonder whether COVID is an accelerant or a catalyst for that, or we can wonder that COVID happened to come along at the time when it was happening anyway. And so the reason these fourth turnings happen so regularly every you know 80 to 100 years is that we make the same mistakes every 80 to 100 years. And you know the last plague was around a fourth turning back in the you know in the early 1900s. And the last fourth turning culminated with World War II. Are we heading for World War III possibly? I don't know. But the the conversations we need to have as a society are with each other one to one and are not through the microphone and not through the megaphone and not from a platform in a group of people who are brought together under a common cause and a common belief who are absolutely unwilling to entertain that there are people out there smart thoughtful thinking people who happen to have a different view of things and it to me it's the single greatest shame that we face as a society right now I, I I agree with um, all of that. And, and I will say I'm not vaccinated, but that's not because I'm super special. It's because I have a job that allowed me to stay that way. And I know yeah, for and, a fact, I, know, I don't if care, I, if, right? if I, I had three care. young kids at home and, and, and my company was telling me you either do this or you get fired, I, I would have rolled up my sleeve. Right. I, right. So it's just, I, but I deplore the fact that people were forced to do that. That's force. Well, they say, well, you had a choice. You could yeah. have quit your job, yeah. right? No, no, that's not a choice. That's called coercion. No. We understand it in the context of sexual harassment, right? If your boss says, hey, yeah. roll up your skirt or you're fired, right? We get right. that. Like, that's wrong, right? But somehow it's different when he says, you know, I'm going to inject this stuff in your body um, against yeah. your will. Roll up your sleeve. Uh, look, and look, let, let's, 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 let's talk about the people making those decisions, the people in charge, right? Because, again, this is another important discussion to have. Uh, I, I, I don't fall into the narrative that this was a Klaus Schwab exercise, right? I think you had a whole lot of people in office around the world who sadly, and it's a, it's generally a blanket, um, statement that you can make now are, are unequipped for public office. The, 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 the paucity of real leadership is, is extraordinary in my mind, right around the world. So mm. if you take a whole lot of people unfit for office and you put them in a situation where they have an extraordinary once in a hundred year event that poses a great threat and requires action. I don't know how easy it is for us to expect them to do, to act in a way that post ex post, we can look back at and go, wow, didn't they handle that well? Because they're just not equipped for it. They're all buffoons most of them have never held a, a job in the public sector. They don't know anything about anything except being an elected right. official. And they're, they're not fit for purpose. So if you want to say to me, hey, listen, Boris Johnson screwed up. Of course he did. He's a 
fucking idiot. Of course he screwed up. You want to tell me that Justin Trudeau screwed up? Well, duh. Jacinta Ardern, right? Donald Trump, Biden, any of them. There isn't anybody that you can point me to that I would say, you know, I'm disappointed in him. I thought he'd be better than this. I thought he'd make sound decisions and be mm. braver and go, you know what? And and look, Johnson, to his minute credit, initially said, we're going to go the Sweden way, right? And then got got bullied into walking it back a few days later and then all hell unfolded in the UK and it was a complete clown show. Um, but it's hard to look anywhere back and say any one of these guys, any one of these people that we put our trust in to lead us and to make decisions for our collective good did a good job. And it's not only that none of them did a good job, they all did a terrible job. And you can say that lockdown saved lives. You can say that. It's absolutely right. My problem is what we have now when we're looking at through these um, inquiries that are going on, right? You look at the inquiries, and I'm watching the ones in the UK. They've had Johnson in. They've had Rishi Sunak in, who both, miraculously, all their WhatsApp messages have disappeared. I mean, it happens, right? It happens all the time. <laughs> all yep. the thousands of messages j just through that lockdown period. I don't know what's happened. They didn't come over my phone. The problem here is accountability. And I don't mean accountability in the sense of Johnson should be put in prison or Sunak should be put in prison or Trudeau or any of these guys. They were presented with a terrible situation and they had to do something that they weren't equipped to do. My problem is there is no apology. There is no coming out and saying, hey, look, we've looked at this. We've done an inquiry about how we had this event. We made some mis serious mistakes. And we should never have done this. And we should never have demonized those people. And to you, unvaccinated people that we demonized at the time, we are incredibly sorry. We owe you an apology. And why won't why won't that happen? Because obviously the lawsuits will start. And all the all the circus that goes around that, coming back to what I said earlier about it, it's impossible to say I'm sorry or say I was wrong about anything in the world today. The same thing will happen. So the public gets cheated twice because a lot of people just want someone behind that lectern to say, you know what? You were right about a lot of this. We screwed up. And they need to hear that because they don't feel heard and they feel demonized and they feel cheated, but it won't happen. And that is another tragedy for me that there can't be this acceptance that, hey, you know what? If you, if you were sitting in row 1A of a, of a Boeing 747, Chris, and the pilot got sick, and you know, there were two of you left on the plane, and one of you was in a wheelchair, and you were the other guy. And they said, well, I better try and land this plane. I've got no training on a, on a, on a jumbo jet, but you can't do it. I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to get in the plane. I'm going to try and land, and you crash the plane, right? Should we have expected you to be able to land the plane? No. No, we shouldn't. You were put in something you weren't capable of doing, and it didn't work out. And I'm really sorry. I, you know, I destroyed the plane. I trashed the airport. No one else was going to do it. I had to take a shot at it, and I screwed it up. It's perfectly okay. But the 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 um, the jeopardy of this and the size of these decisions was so big that too many people were impacted to afford a meaningful apology. I actually think that if any politician who was responsible for these things actually stood up in public and said, "I was out of my depth." I was trying my best. I made decisions in the 
heat at the moment under enormous pressure, which I thought were right. I look back now and I should have made different decisions. And I cannot apologize enough for that. I think that person is the sort of person who will get voted in at the next election. Because look what we found, an honest politician. God forbid that we should have a few of those at the helm. So, you know, this stuff, I I, I, I shy away from talking about it most of the time um, because it's difficult to do it while trying to demonstrate effectively a position of I'm I'm in the middle. I'm, I'm willing to understand both sides. I'm willing to uh, understand that mistakes were made. I'm willing to, to understand that people are fallible. I don't need vengeance. I don't need Boris Johnson strung up from a lamppost because of the decisions he made. But you know what? An acknowledgement and an apology about the mistakes that were made, I think, would would be the very least that that people could do. Um, I think that's fair. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna first extract it one level and then and then give an example where I think not only did they not do a good job, but they didn't want to. And here's my thesis behind that. First, one level higher. 99.999% certainty, and this is as certain as I've been about anything, that this uh, coronavirus was created in a lab, right? The I, genetic I signatures are all there. I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I, I'm pretty I, sure it was too. So so the conversation at a minimum ought to include, maybe we should, this was a self-inflicted wound, and then we handled it badly. Now on to that second charge. We had early data, such as from Uttar Pradesh, 260 million people, desperately poor compared to Western countries, handled it perfectly track and trace groups, early treatments, the whole nine yards, right? Um, and and their death rate was like zeroed out early on in this whole thing. They, they just managed it exceedingly well. So at a minimum, I would expect, hey, this is complicated. We don't know what we're doing. We're having these terrible results, right? United States had the worst results, if you believe the official statistics. There's some confusion, died with versus died of. There was some padding of the numbers. But leaving that aside, taking those numbers at face value, we did objectively orders of magnitude worse than other nations. So that ought, all on its own ought to say some sort of inquiry, right? What happened? So, uh, but I hear what you're saying. And and I really, really, really believe that, you know, they did the best they could in South Africa to get past apartheid and they had some nasty stuff, right? And they ended up setting up these truth and reconciliation yep. commissions because, and the truth needed to be in there because they said, and I love this saying, because it lands with me and I believe in it. There can be no reconciliation without truth. And what you're saying is these people are saying, hey, can we just reconcile? But we'd like to skip over the truth part. That doesn't right. work. That's like a I hairball agree. that sticks in the I throat forever. Agree. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and it won't happen. Look, it won't happen because it can't happen. And and look, um, when you look at Uttar Pradesh, right, perfect example. But the nature of that society and and their the level to which they're accustomed to being protected by their leaders is much lower. So they weren't expecting, hey, our government are going to absolutely take care of us. Because as you say, the poverty levels there are enormous. And it's the, the population you're talking about are not used to being protected by their government. And so that there was a different way of handling it. You know, we in the West, everybody looked to the government. What should we do? What do we do? You you stay indoors. I mean, think about this. If 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 you, we just said in 2019, what do you reckon the chances are that we could lock 7 billion people in their homes basically without a peep? We could tell them mm -hmm. you've got to stay indoors and you can't work and you're, you're only allowed out for an hour a day and we could basically get away with that. You just said zero chance, mm -hmm. zero chance. 
But along comes COVID and it happens very easily. And yes, you get people protesting and of, of course you do, but you quickly demonize them. And, and you know, that was absolutely a deliberate narrative. We have to make these people bad people so that their peers say to them, you're a bad person, don't go out. That was all very deliberate and all part mm -hmm. of the things that should be apologized for. Um, and I, you know, I, I met many years ago when I was in Singapore, one of the guys who was on that Truth and Reconciliation Committee in South Africa, um, fascinating guy, Paul Van Zale. And, and, you know, I spoke to him about this at length. And it, and it was extraordinary that that was the path they took. And it worked. And it was incredibly important. But, again, I don't know that in America or in the UK or in Australia, or particularly in Australia, where the measures taken were just beyond inconceivable to me, um, I don't know that that works. Because as soon as you get the truth out there of what happened in places like that, uh, you know, what did Jack Nicholson say? You can't handle the truth. And people won't be able to handle that truth because it will show a level of ineptitude and a level of of just ill-preparedness uh, to deal with the office to which these people have been elected. And it will it will shatter confidence in the entire political system. Right? If, if our leaders are this useless at protecting us from really the only thing they've had to protect us for in 20 from in 25 years the only real threat what are we doing like, it, you start to question the entire system and again fourth turning this is what happens the entire yeah. institutional system gets questioned and gets torn down so for me whether they apologize or not covid has shown their ineptitude it has unleashed this wave of dissatisfaction with the political class which is frankly overdue and deserved and deserved yeah and 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 that process is it's unstoppable now and it will end like it ends every time in the cycle with the tearing down of institutions with the tearing down of the political class and a rebuilding and that's not a bad thing the question is what's and I won't even ask if we can do it peacefully cuz history would suggest we can't but what's the least violent way in which we can do that that to me is now the question. What does what does the tearing down of the political system, the tearing down of institutions mean in terms of the least violent way that can happen? And I again I hope for the best and prepare for the worst. You know, it's it it's um falling out of the building has never killed anybody, but the sidewalk has had a, right. a big role to right. play in this whole thing, yeah. right? Yes. Um and and so uh, here's the thing I'm concerned about. If if people were terrorized by and hated the 99.95% system-wide survival rate of COVID, they're really not going to like what happens when we screw up uh, the energy transition because we're going to be transitioning. So so let's take an example. Germany, right? Habeck over in Germany. They, they've had many hundreds of billions of dollars a decade or more with the Energy VN program. They're going to do all this wonderful stuff. Solar wind made a big, big push. They, they've done a lot. OK, and 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 then even though they're now cut off from Russian gas because the, the Nord Stream pipelines mysteriously um, hung themselves there in the Baltic, um, uh, you know, that that they then is a next order of business shut down their last three nuclear plants and hop, skip and a jump. Here we are a year and a half, two years after that. 
And they are now de-energizing in, in the sense of de-industrializing for their energy intensive industries, right? Cement, steel, glass, yeah. all the super heavy ones fleeing, right? And I think what Germany's going to discover, this is all so predictable. I, I feel like I, I want to become Nikita Khrushchev, get my foot and start pounding the lectern with my shoe, you know, like, because I've driven through the mill towns in Massachusetts, the ex-coal towns in Pennsylvania, when your prime energy bearing industry leaves, you have a hundred to 200 years of darkness that follows. It just sucks the life out. I don't know how, but it just does. I'm very worried that we're going to, we're, we're going to have this we're just making colossal mistakes on the energy front here. And it's bizarre because I talk to people like Simon Michaud. I talk to um, Sorensen. I talk to Townsend. And these are all people who say, look, we have these small modular nuclear reactors. If we started an emergency program, there's a chance we could really buffer this. And the West has no interest in this. Zero. Well, okay, let, let, let me challenge that a little because um, I think if you look closely you will see there is a what feels like a need on the part of policymakers. I think they've realized there is a need to walk back their anti-nuclear rhetoric. Now, again, in, a, in a, an ideal world, it would be easy to go, hey, you know what? We've revisited nuclear. We made some knee-jerk uh, decisions in the wake of Fukushima. Mm -hmm. We've studied it. We've looked at it. The modern technology is much safer. It's the answer for, if we're going to have a sensible move towards green energy, nuclear is the answer. We're going to do it. Um, of course, that won't happen, right? They can't do that because it makes all the decisions they made. It makes them look like the clowns they are. But ultimately, you can see this yeah. nuclear thing being walked back gently. People are starting mm -hmm. to talk. Even the Japanese are starting to talk about, you know, and if the Japanese can go back to nuclear, the Germans sure as hell can. Um so you're starting to see that being walked back, uh, and you are starting to see, um, the, again, the careful crafting of, okay, show me a, a safe path out of the, these woods I've got myself into. How do I get to being pro-nuclear from where I was? Give me a trail of breadcrumbs that I can follow incrementally that makes sense and people can follow along and they can it doesn't look like i've changed my mind it looks like we've gradually come around to nuclear which let's face it is by far the most sensible solution staring us in the face right now there's no mm -hmm. two ways about that and again the narrative around nuclear was how dangerous it was the narrative was you don't want any nuclear plants being built because they're going to blow up and think about what happens when the radiation goes everywhere and all these people die which is nonsense right can there be an accident of course there can were there pit collapses when we were mining coal you know famously in in Wrexham where Ryan Reynolds and Charlie McElhenney have done great things with the football club every year they commemorate the pit disaster where the the thing fell in yes people outside weren't swamped with way clouds of radioactive gas but accidents happen but the technology in nuclear today is so much safer and the and the the kind of the red herring about nuclear waste and not being able to dispose of nuclear waste safely, that's been debunked so brilliantly and so clearly by people who really understand the science. It becomes down to narrative. But if the politicians won't have the guts to stand up and say, you know what, look, we did make some knee-jerk reactions. We thought they were for the best, but we've studied it. We've looked at the numbers, and the only way we're going to get to our targets is to embrace nuclear. Two things. One, I guarantee you, 
you can convince the public of that because you can convince the public of just about anything. If you can convince them all to voluntarily lock themselves in prison, except for an hour a day in the exercise yard, you can mm -hmm. convince them over time that nuclear is good and not bad, right? So you can do that. Um, and, and once that happens, you have a means by which to move forward. But if you don't do that, and we're seeing this in Germany, you are starting to see the AFD party, the Alternative für Deutschland party, who, of course, are immediately branded far-right, because there's nothing, mm -hmm. there is no center-right party anymore. There's no right-wing party. Everybody's either, you know, left-wing or far-right-wing. That's it. Uh, so AFD, who are pro-nuclear and campaigning on, you know, this green energy transition, we need to be more pragmatic about it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, it just so happens that they have different views on immigration. And there are plenty of people who will tell you that Germany's immigration policies have been a disaster for the country. Um, if the politicians don't walk this stuff back, the electorates will do it for them. They will start voting for people who make sense. And nuclear makes sense. It's that simple. And if you don't, if you're worried about nuclear power, then you know a few thousand people might have to relocate themselves away from a nuclear reactor if they're worried about it. But the the change that brings to the power grid, to the uh, the climate agenda, to all these things, is is undeniable. So you have to find a way to do it. And I think they're in that process. They're in that process now of how can we not publicly say we're idiots, but how can we gently turn this around and create a safe path back to, hey, we, we, we believe in nuclear all along. How do we do that? And you'll be amazed how willing the public will be to go along with it. You know, I have a slightly different view on that, which is, um, go, go. at least in my lifetime, I have not yet seen a politician who grabs a flag and runs up the hill, you know? But if a bunch of people get the flag almost to the top of the hill, a politician will magically appear and take <laughs> yes, it the last foot. Yes, This is very true. This is <laughs> So very the question true. is, is how do we help contribute to getting that flag up the hill? How, what, what, I mean, this is all narrative structure, right? So we have, I grew up in the, in the anti-nuclear era, right? And I think I probably was anti-nuclear when I was in my teens or something, because I'd heard it all. I mean, I grew up right. three mile Island was a thing when I was young and, yep. um, you know, there, there was all this stuff and there was, you know, Japanese movies of radiation leading to Godzilla coming out of the ocean. There was like a lot of stuff, right? Uh, it turns out all to be false mostly. Um, and we have new technologies which are vastly safer than the old Mark V boiling reactors, right? So, so it's a whole new story. H how do we how do how do we begin to shift that narrative? Like, look, what can I, we I do? Think, I, look, it, it, it's such a it's such a great question, such an important question. And I and I think honestly, the only thing we can do is have conversations like this, right? And you and you hope that by engaging in a conversation from uh, from a, a, a position that holding a willingness to listen to the other side, it's really the best we can do, Chris, because the time will come when the the pendulum swings and more people will be unable to afford, and, and a lot of this comes down to the inability to afford energy, and when nuclear is put forward as a way to lower an energy bill that you cannot afford to pay to keep your house warm, mm -hmm. a lot of people will say, just like they did with the vaccine, I'm willing to take that risk on nuclear because I need to heat my home and put my family, mm -hmm. you know, put my family in bed in, in a warm house at night. And so these things tend to follow a path of their own and they have a life of their own and there is a natural impetus behind them 
but having conversations like this and being able to talk about difficult subjects in an open way and explain to people that it's okay for you to disagree with what either you and I are saying here, but at least listen to it. Don't, don't do what the guys of Felix said and, oh, I heard what he said about global cooling, so I completely disregarded what he said about Japanese government bonds. Mm -hmm. How does that make any sense? You know, I thought he was brilliant for an hour and 14 and a half minutes, but that 30 minutes made me question everything he said. Why? Why? Be, you know, look, I love Ted Lasso. And this, this, this idea of being curious and not judgmental is, is so important. It's such a throwaway line and it's such a cute, you know, thing you put on a fridge magnet. But if you think about what it's actually saying, and if you think about how different things would be if we were curious and not judgmental, if we wanted to understand why people didn't want to get vaccinated or why people think that global cooling could be a potential thing that we haven't thought of, why do you think that? Why don't you want to get vaccinated? What are you worried about? What are your concerns? It doesn't make you a bad person, but it's something that, unfortunately, like everything, there is a process you have to go through to get to that point of acceptance and that point of reconciliation never mind the truth part of it and we're just not there yet but i i i think for the first time i am starting to see very tiny shifts in this mm. in this willingness to to call out for politicians and to call out the climate agenda as being way too dogmatic and and there are questions we need answered and and to question nuclear and and um, and to question like immigration in the UK and in Australia we're starting to see these these grassroots emerging where people say you know actually I've got a few questions and it has mm -hmm. to begin with that it has to begin with people wanting answers to questions and and I think you know I I, I don't know but I think that we may be in the kind of early embryonic stages of that process. And I, and I hope so. I, I hope so too. And I, I do credit Elon Musk with um, opening this up quite a bit, because if he hadn't come in and opened the Twitter files, we wouldn't have gotten at least a chance to peek at, and I, it hasn't gotten the traction it deserves yet. But, but for me, Grant, the most offensive and most dangerous thing I've ever seen is groups of people within the construct of the government using all the tools of, of the state with its force to label things misinformation, malinformation, disinformation. Most dangerous thing I've ever seen. Yeah, right? look, it's, is it's it... control of the narrative. It's control of the narrative. And here is where you've laid a beautiful trap for me, Chris, given everything mm. I've said in the last hour and change. Um, and then you bring up Elon Musk, where I have a I have a blind spot, and I'm happy to admit it. I have a massive blind spot when it comes to Elon Musk uh, and, and and the kind of person he is. I'm not, I'm not such a believer in Elon Musk. I listen to everyone that tells me, the, the positive side. I, I absolutely listen to what they have to say. I, I was but, very uh, careful that the, the, no, no, the, no, the I slot I, was, I put him I, in. <laughs> but but I was I was smiling to myself because it, it was it was it was a beautifully laid trap and I and I walked straight into it. But I instead of being quiet and saying, oh yeah, no fine, I have to out myself um before <laughs> before your public doesn't say, ah, you're typical. You say about tolerance and then you've got this view of Elon Musk. Um mm. and I, you know, I've I've walked the walk in that I've listened to what people have to say about him. And I, you know, I read all the articles, good and bad, but I, 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 I have enough information to make what I believe to be an informed judgment. Let me, let me, let me put the mail back in this one slot. He, he, he opened Twitter back up so that we at least could uh, like, like, so this is a before and after. So I was one of the people getting heavily silenced, right? 
my YouTube channel got strikes because I dared to say words like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Listen, you can have whatever beliefs you want. I don't care. Here's some data. What should we do with this data? Right. And it seems to be working under these conditions and it's completely safe. And I'm a toxicologist by training. So if something is completely safe and has a therapeutic index window that's over 10, the answer is, of course, you would try it. Why not? What does it hurt? But it, anyway, so before he came on board, I, I couldn't talk about anything, uh, you know, ostensibly, I've got 140, 50,000 followers and I would get engagements with like 10 views, you know, if I mentioned the dreaded bad words. Right. So that yeah. changed. And I was thankful for that. And at least now we can have the conversation because to me, there is no dangerous conversation. If somebody wants to come forward and say, I think all vaccines are terrible and they all create autism, right? Say it. Where's the data? At least you begin to have the conversation because I have found, Grant, in my own life that the times when I actually find out what I don't know and sharpen my arguments up is when I think I know something and somebody gives me a primary fundamental challenge and I have to start at the beginning and explain it all. That's usually yeah. where things get get better. So I believe in that process wholeheartedly that there is no such thing as dangerous information. There's just information that 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 you could stand to be corrected. And if it's really odious and bad information, it never gets any traction. Nobody cares. It doesn't do anything, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I, I'm absolutely pro-free speech. I think people should be allowed to say what they want. Um, you know, it's it's I have this this belief, and I've had it for a long time, that that offense is generally speaking not given it's taken you know you choose to take offense about something someone says you you imply mm. meaning to it now it's very obvious if someone's looking to give offense it's very obvious what they're doing right you will know mm. when someone is trying to be offensive right but for the most part we have become a society that chooses to take offense and if you choose to take offense it's on you Right, and and I, you know I'm I'm a huge fan of Ricky Gervais, and he and his comedy around this is absolutely brilliant. It's yeah. so yeah. clever and smart and well observed when he talks about not understanding the subject and the target of the joke. It's so important, um, and this idea of free speech, I, I agree with you. Right, if 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 you've got these nutters out there who want to say these wild and wacky things, the reality is anybody that takes them seriously is prone to thinking that stupid stuff anyway. You're not going to persuade them not to be nut jobs that believe in whatever right um and by exposing them to the public you give more people the chance to go christ look at this idiot i mean how do you even believe this stuff right and and, and to you say they naturally expose themselves the problem um the problem as is the case with a lot of things is social media again because it amplifies these messages and it it can funnel them to people who perhaps aren't as well equipped to make uh, informed decisions and to make balanced judgments about things that are being said. And it, it enables the kind of assembly of mobs. It, 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 and you see it. You see these pile-ons from people. Um, and we've seen this in, in Which may be a lot of bots. Absolutely, right? AI but it, but bots it, whose job is to create outrage and division and... Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and this is precisely why, you know, free speech as an idea is a tremendous idea. And I, I'm absolutely pro it. And I, I wouldn't put any restrictions on speech. But I can see why there are certain people who believe, to your point, that, again, put yourself back in the leadership role of the pandemic. And if someone's coming to you and you're an eloquent leader going, hey, this free speech thing, if we leave this unchecked, 
groups of bots are going to infect everybody into believing that the moon landings were fake and that the earth is flat. And we need to stamp this out because that's what the bots are going to do. Unless you make a ruling on this, those leaders, ill-equipped as they are, are not going to go, you know what? Let's let the idiots crowd around the idiots and leave them in the corner of the room. And let's the rest of us enjoy the platform that free speech gives us to debate important ideas, to disagree with each other and to learn. They're not going to do that. They're going to go, uh-oh, I need to do something. I need to protect people from these evil bots that are going to make everyone believe the moon landings were faked. And so I need to act. That's that's where we are. It's not going to change. The only thing we can hope changes is the political class, and they will. The political class will change. The question is, what is the, the next political class going to look like? Are they going to be more interventionist? Are they going to be more anti-free speech? Are they going to be more of this kind of you know Marxist Lenin Lenin uh, Marxist Leninist? We need to control yeah. everybody, or is it going to be a, 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 a refusion of this political class and say no? We need to go back to self-government and and trusting the public and free speech and the ability to debate. And all it's going to go one of those two ways, sadly. And I know which way I desperately want it to go, and I know which way I greatly fear it'll go. Well, let, let, um, on that front, um, and as a final question, because I, I know, thank you, for, you've been very generous with your time. Um, I have to ask, though, um, Malay, Argentina. Yeah. He, he, he to, to me, he just makes my heart sing, and I, I could be totally misinterpreting and, and putting too much, but when he's going to take 22 Argentinian departments and skinny it down to nine, I just go, you know, there it is. But that's sort of an accelerant on the fourth turning, right? We've lost so much faith in these institutions. We're just going to take them out in the field and put bullets in them and call it a day, right? Uh, I actually, to me, that feels like progress. What do you think? Do you mean uh, Argentina's new far-right leader, Millet? Is that who yeah, you're talking far, about? Far-right, right? who, who quotes yeah. John Stuart Mill and, and, and right. uh, Hayek. Yes, yeah, that and, guy. And, and this kind of comes back to my point. Look, the answer is we don't know, right? But how wonderful... To, to watch this experiment. How wonderful to get a chance if, and it's a big if, if he's allowed to push this agenda through, and we have seen plenty of leaders get elected. If you go back to um, you know, the, the European debt crisis, your Sarita come in with uh, Cyprus, and you saw all the what he campaigned on in terms of sticking it to the EU, and once he got in power, no, I'm going to take the money and completely go back on everything I said I was going to do. Look at Maloney in Italy. Uh, and the broken promises that she's going. So we we don't know. The jury's out on Millet. Um, I think I think it would be a good thing for the world if he's allowed to follow his agenda. Um, so we can see. So we can see a practical case of what he's suggesting in terms of shrinking the government dramatically. You know, abolishing the central bank. All these things that people in the West have have rallied behind for a long time. Yeah. Really kind of knowing it's never going to happen. You know, the end the Fed movement know that the, the US is not going to put a line through the Federal Reserve, it's not going to happen. But at least now we get to watch a real world example. I, I hope. I, I have my doubts that he will be able to follow through. And I choose my words carefully. I, I, I could choose to say he'll be allowed to follow through, but I'm going to say he'll be able to follow through. Um, but what a glorious experiment it's going to be. You know, I I I feel for the people of Argentina if it if it goes badly, because God knows they've had to suffer enough false doors and enough promises of change and enough promises of stability, um, none of which have uh, really come to pass since the country's heydays a long time ago. Um, but look, I, 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 I saw him on the 
on the campaign trail on the lead up to the election. And I noted how quickly he was, he became far right candidate Millet. Uh, it, it happened so, so quickly. And it, it's, it's very obviously and deliberately attached to every single article in mainstream media that talks about him. They hammer home this idea that he's far right, because again, far right is bad. Um, I don't think he's far right at all, to be honest with you. I really don't. Um, but I'm curious to watch what happens. And, and you know, I, I wish him luck with what he's going to try and do, because I think it'll be a great test case for other countries. I don't think it's comparable uh, to see Argentina try this. I don't think we can take the results from Argentina and extrapolate them to the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve or any of these major Western countries. But, you know, I, I, I wish him well in, in what he's trying to do, because I think it's, I think it's uh, an important thing for the world to see that there can be another way and and what does it look like well thank you for that that's very reasonable I, i'm i'm very hopeful um because i i really i just want reform right you know not more than that i want common sense to come back i actually you know i read china's energy policy and it was written like by, by actual engineers who had grid scale understanding and it makes sense and it's sensible and it has a foreign policy directive that makes sense we should do win-win, pursue win-win engagements with people who are supplying our energy and all. It was just very sensible, right? Um, not here to say everything about China sensible, but but their energy policy is. I just want sensible to come back again, uh, you know, politically. And for that, we have to get a new class of people in. You know, Malay yeah. could use a hairstylist, right? But but oh my gosh, he quotes he quotes Austrian economists verbatim from memory right yeah. he's got the context he he understands the relationship between political capital and financial capital and how they compare right he's he's capable of forming you yeah. know reasonable thoughts right so so it, yeah. it's kind of like you know when i listen to rfk jr talk it's kind of like oh oh you want to talk about ukraine he's going to rewind that dial to you know 1998 and start there so you can have some context right so i think that's what i would want is appropriate context yeah have the debate yeah. Yeah, I think you know? so. I mean, look, don't forget in Argentina, we had Macri come in not so long ago, and he was supposed to be, you know, the guy who yeah. understood business and was going to change everything. And we had the hundred year bond, and we all saw how that worked out. So I don't know. And 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 again, you know, we we forget that you get some people who understand the science of energy to write a Chinese energy report, right? And and actually, let's not use China just because of the way the political system set up. But let's say you have someone in Germany. And you, you charge people that really, really understand energy in all its forms, and you get them to write a recommendation for German energy, energy policy. And to you, as someone that understands this stuff, it reads like the Chinese energy policy. It's pragmatic, it's sensible, it covers all the bases, and it offers a genuine roadmap to uh, a, a better future in, in terms of German energy policy. What's the first thing that happens to that report? It goes to a uh, government committee and the government committee don't read it and go awesome let's get cracking they go okay first of all how does this fit with our current energy policy how how much is this going to rip up what we're already trying to do the thing that we campaigned on the thing that we said we were going to do this is completely different so right what are we going to do if we're going to follow this we're going to have to walk back everything we've said so we it becomes a political thing. How do we do that without losing face, without losing votes, without losing power? And if we can't find a way 
to take this much better policy forward without losing power, we're going to come back the other way and we're going to try, okay, how do we dilute this fantastic policy to the point where it enables us to keep power? And that's the problem with all of these ideas about how do we come up with a better way to do important things for society is the study becomes committee, becomes political, and it's always, always the way forward that is going to be bent to shape the political outcome. And that, I'm afraid, is not going to change. We may get different political actors in who come in and are able to uh, and are able to kitchen sink the last policy and will campaign on we're going to tear up energy policy. And they get the report, they go, perfect, because this, not only is it a great energy policy, but look at the points we can score against the last administration by demonstrating what idiots we were. So we're going to embrace this. That could happen, right? We could we could see that kind of change. But I, I, I you know, I, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that everything becomes political. And as soon as it becomes political, you, you've got the tail wagging the dog and, and the policy becomes secondary to how, what does the policy need to look like, not to be the best it can be, but to fit the political agenda that we have. And that's, that's a shame. Uh, it's not just a shame, but I, I thank you for that. I thank you. Cause this helps crystallize it for me. So, so that that's very pragmatic. That's how things have been. Hello. Oh, physics is at the door, right? We're, we're, we're about to, you know, politics is about to meet physics. We, we can have all the politics we want, but when you don't have enough energy molecules to to use anymore, physics wins the wins the game every day. So that's what I'm concerned about. I guess that's the core of my complaint is that humans have a narrative structure that may or may not cognitively map to reality. And we've got reality and I span both worlds and I'm saying there's screaming signs coming out of world reality over here. Loss of insects, um, you know, complete destruction of aquifers. There's some issues, right? You know, but at the root of it all, Grant. It's energy. There are no energy poor yeah. rich countries. Full stop. So all done. It's so true. You know, our mutual friend Doomberg has this great, uh, great phrase he came up with. You know, in the battle between physics and platitudes, physics is undefeated, and he's mm -hmm. absolutely right. However, however, you know the 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 ocean of platitudes you have to wade through before physics is allowed to be proven right, and that takes time. Uh, and it and it creates even bigger um, disturbances, and it creates even bigger problems because these platitudes uh, are political in nature. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. Physics is knocking at the door, but no one's going to open the door and invite them in. They're going to wait until it smashes the door down and storms it, and that's mm -hmm. the problem, right? That's the problem because yep. you're right. Physics and Doomberg's right. Physics is undefeated. You can't argue with physics. But you can not let him have his say for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Indeed, or her—I should say him or her. I don't want to. I don't <laughs> want to misgender physics. Not too late. Your the emails are on their way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, Grant, thank you so much for your time today. Again, it's Grant-Williams.com for everybody. Uh, your things that make you go home month monthly newsletter is just a, an absolute genius uh, work of art every time. Um, I invite you. everybody to to check that out. And um, is there any other way or place you would like people to find you? Well, look, you can, the, the the hate tweets can go to me at, at ttmygh when this comes out, and uh, I, I I look for I look forward to uh, to reading, but not engaging with an awful lot of an awful lot of tweets that just uh, ad hominem stuff. But uh, 
but uh, yeah, look, it's it's been it's been a great pleasure, Chris. We, we haven't done this in a long, long time, and I, I thank you for having uh, for giving me the time you did, and 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 for such a thoughtful conversation. You know, it, it's it's nice to be able to have these discussions with someone who's thoughtful and balanced, and 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 willing to 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 listen to both sides from from. Yeah, you know, maybe a skewed point in the middle, but at least an openness to to have the debate. So I, I I thank you for that. Well, and I thank you. You've nudged my thinking in multiple directions, which is what I value most highly. When people say, you know, who are your who are your stars? Who do you follow? It's it's people who change my mind about stuff. Um, and uh, and so there there's that that's what I value most now. Uh, I love having my mind changed. Um, well, I don't know why. Uh, Just feel me... weird. If there's one thing I can change your mind about, it's Millet's haircut. I think if, if Oasis get back together, then he's I'm an just jealous. shoe in if he That's keeps all. that haircut. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh no. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's amazing uh, so far. We'll see. I don't know. From the outside out here in the cheap seats. Interesting show. Can't, I'm go. very entertained so far. All right. With that, Grant, thank you so much for your time again. And all right, um, my friend, anytime. all the best. Thanks, Chris. Take care of yourself.